Hello, welcome to the Future of Football, a brand new show brought to you by The Athletic. Last week we examined the multi-billion pound broadcasting bubble. This week we're going to turn our attention to something a little bit different, a look at the mother of all football tournaments, the FIFA World Cup. With the next tournament being held in winter and the one after that featuring 48 teams, is the World Cup as we know it going to struggle? After fresh allegations of corruption and bribery surfaced this week, can anyone still take it seriously as the pinnacle of the sport? Has it actually been overhyped for a long time now? Don't we all just look back at the tournaments of our youth with misty eyes, regardless of whether they were any good? Or, and this may be more the case, are we just being a bit too cynical for all the political nonsense? Is it still great fun if your team does well. This is the future of football brought to you by The Athletic. And we've got three of The Athletic's big hitters with us for this one. Amy Lawrence, Raphael Honigstein and Ed Malion all with us. Before before we come on to the, the real subject of the World Cup, I mentioned in that intro that you can get misty-eyed over the tournaments uh, of your youth. So I, I want each of you to tell me what is the first World Cup you can remember and whether even now you still think that is the best one. And the reason I ask that is because mine was Espana 82 and for me, that's still the best World Cup, even though there were some awful games in it. But it was the first one. I had the sticker book. I absolutely love that World Cup. Amy? The first one I remember properly watching was a little bit after you was, was Mexico. Ah, you've got off to a bad start because you made me feel old before we've even done anything. But go on. That is that is not my golden World Cup that I love above all World Cups because I am a evangelical Italian 90 proclaimer. I, I adore it in a kind of ridiculous, overblown, nostalgic <laughs> way. And I, 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 I love it mostly because I went. Um, uh, I went with a couple of mates spontaneously with 200 pounds of sleeping bag and had the best week of my life. Probably. So I have a kind of, uh, it, it exists in a haze of golden glow that is perfection. And I do remember coming away from that World Cup thinking, well, all World Cups should always be in Italy. Um, <laughs> which uh, I, I wrestle with that because I half still believe it and I half don't believe it at all. But th there was something so perfect about the way that country hosted in the real sense of the word hosting Uh that was extraordinarily powerful. And I often kind of think I would just jump back to that time in a heartbeat. It was, I feel a bit like it was the last old style World Cup, you know, things started to change the, the commercialization and so on with USA 94, when they sort of departed from traditional football nations for the first time and put us on this course that leads us to where we are now. Raf. Your, your first one and your favourite one, I suppose, then. Well, you'll feel better now because it was also Spain 82 for me. Good, thank um, goodness. For all the same reasons, the Panini stickers, the Zicos, the Socrates, yeah. uh, the Italians, the Germans, Germany, France in the semi-final. Um, I don't remember watching that many games because I think most of them were on at night and I probably wasn't allowed to watch them. Uh, I do remember, though, uh, watching the final and crying when Germany lost. Um, West Germany, I should say. Yes. Uh, I don't know if that was the best one. I think the best one for me was, was Germany 2006. Maybe not so much for what happened on the pitch, and we might talk about this a bit later, but sort of the the emotional effect of, of that World Cup and being in Germany for that uh, five, five, six weeks in the sunshine. Um, I don't think I've ever experienced this kind of collective emotional pull in, in connection with, with football or, or anything else really and uh, I think for that reason it wouldn't be bothered. Had you been to a World Cup before Germany? Did you go to Japan or did you go to France 98? No, that might be another reason. I mean, Germany sure. 2006 was both my first one as a journalist, but also also attending the first one. And the reason for that is quite simple. I mean, if you were um, a football fan in the 80s, 90s, you didn't go to see Germany. I mean, only the, the rebel really went to see Germany and you really didn't want to, to be with these people in the same 
in the same stadium. So it's only after, well, I guess Japan, South Korea would have been fine, but a little bit far away. But only after 2006, where things change and it's acceptable and okay to to support Germany. Ed, your your first World Cup, your favourite World Cup, well, even the first World Cup you went to. The first one I remember, my parents weren't into football, so I remember getting a Happy Meal and there had been like USA 94 toys in it. But I don't remember any part of USA 94. I remember Euro 96 as like a first tournament, ended Jeez. similar ways to Rafa crying. I wasn't allowed to stay up to watch him in Germany, so I woke up at 5am the next morning. Went downstairs and, and cried at half five instead. Um, How, well, hang on, well, hang on a minute. You weren't allowed to stay up to watch England Germany. I told you, my parents didn't like football, man. Honestly, like that, okay. that was the situation. So, so I woke up early, watched the recording, uh, cried at that. World Cup '98 was the first tournament I be. I remember watching and fully witnessing, um, and particularly remember watching the final. And then it being over and then just being like, what do I do now? Because we just had football every day for a month. And 06 was great. But my my favorite is the first one I went to, which is Brazil. I love Brazil as a country anyway. And uh, it's probably about just about the best place I can imagine doing it. Like all those fans that came over, Colombia, Chile, uh, Argentina, Uruguay, like the huge amounts of fans that were traveling, the atmosphere, the food, everything. Brazil was by miles the best I've been to. Isn't it interesting that in the space of that one conversation between the four of us, and three of us are a similar age, but that we've probably mentioned every World Cup between 82 and... And we haven't really mentioned the, the 2018 one, but but we have all spoken about memories of, of, a, of a different tournament. So does that... Does that show the power of the tournament if, as I said in the intro again, Raf, you put your cynicism to one side? I think it does. There isn't really much point sort of denigrating or down-talking the World Cup on, on quality terms. Yes, we all know football at international level was more exciting, was more novel, was probably better in, in absolute qualitative terms, let's say before 1998, maybe 2002 from which point on club football kind of seriously takes over and becomes much better. But what club football doesn't do is take 80 million people outside on the street and they're crying or they're they're cheering and hugging and kissing each other. And as much as the World Cup gets watered down and as much as we find it difficult to enjoy it with FIFA and corruption, all these kind of things, the the emotion it creates are still genuine and still real and nothing nothing else creates the same magnitude of emotion when it when it comes to sort of the, the sheer numbers of people and that's why i think the world cup will retain its its special magical glow um, as much as fifa tried to ruin it i don't think they managed to amy as raf was talking my mind was wandering to particularly when he mentioned hundreds of thousands of people being out coming together communally experiencing something that is completely outside of their everyday life it brings to mind a couple of world cups that we didn't mention that much in our previous bit of chat. So France 98, which is another World Cup I, I, I adored. That was the first one that I, I was working for. And I just remember wandering around the whole time thinking, how has my life got to this moment that I'm actually swanning around this country watching footballers from all over the world? And this is a job. It just seemed absurd. But um, it being in Paris, the night that, that France won the World Cup, the night of the final in Paris where son of immigrants from North Africa was plastered all over the Arc de Triomphe and there were millions of people out going crazy and there'd been so much kind of political background was going on there was this multicultural team and it really really symbolized something way beyond sport it was just unbelievable and it was fascinating seeing the way France changed during that month Uh, I remember watching I think their opening game in a bar in Paris and quite a lot of people weren't that bothered at the time sort of out and about in downtown Paris and then this transformation as people began to kind of get carried along this crescendo of emotion and this crest of a wave that was growing and growing uh, throughout the five weeks until they reached that point where Zidane had his moment in the final and and they beat Brazil and the whole situation regarding Ronaldo and his his, his affliction um, during that game it was it was an extraordinary event uh, of national significance and just going a bit forward to South Korea uh, and Japan in 2002 South Korea was probably the the beginnings of what became fan zones suddenly there were 
millions, literally, of people going out into Seoul and the major cities when South Korea had a game. And Be the Reds was their slogan. And absolutely everybody wore red. And they had certain songs. That, there was a little bit of snobbery about it to start with, as if it had been kind of... Um, people had been taught how to behave and how to be a football fan, because obviously they're going into a relatively young uh, football territory at, at that point. But the way that the South Koreans fell in love with football and fell in love with feeling open about how they felt about their nation and welcoming other people and being on the international stage over that month was joyous. And it just shows the power of the World Cup. It might just be for a month, every four years, but it can make people feel things about themselves, their country, their community, the world that they just don't otherwise feel. Which, therefore, Ed, when you've heard what Raf says and you've heard what Amy said and you've heard how we all spoke about the World Cup right at the start, what is the problem with it? Where is it going? Why should we be concerned about its future? Well, there are a few things at play. Uh, before all of this current issue we find ourselves in, pandemics and the like, the issue with the World Cup, I think, was... A couple of things. One, the clubs are growing stronger and the club football calendar has a lot more influence and sway than international football. People prefer club football as a rule because there's kind of a year-long attachment to that, whereas international football kind of ebbs and flows, disappears from our life for several months at a time and then comes back during pre-assigned international breaks. And FIFA have been trying to get in on some of that club cash. You've probably read about the Club World Cup that they're trying to start up which would essentially be like a, having another World Cup in odd years that's between the top clubs in, in the world because they realise that is actually where all the money is, not really with France playing against Saudi Arabia on a Tuesday night in uh, Kaiserslautern or somewhere. So that that was the issue with the World Cup before this, as well, obviously, as, as renewed allegations this week about impropriety around the Russia and Qatar bids. So this is the first time this week that the Department of Justice in the US have said they've alleged that Qatar paid bribes to three FIFA executive committee officials. So that's the other problem with the World Cup is that there are questions over how these last two bids have been won. And um, I don't know if people have read it, but I wrote a column yesterday uh, explaining my thoughts that with the, the scheduling kind of going to become a massive issue when we try and complete the current season, when we try and start a new season, that there's about eight weeks we can regain from a very packed calendar if we eradicate World Cup 2022 from the schedule. And I'm starting to think that might be an idea we have to look at. Ed, you're mad. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm not doing it because I, I'm not doing it because I hate the World Cup. Obviously, I love the World Cup. And I'm not even doing it because like Qatar is hosting it. It's literally just... I've been looking at all of these sports because it's massive for our business, obviously, when these sports come back. And there are different sports, and you can look at baseball and cricket, and they're the sports I feel really sorry for because they're going to have half a season decimated. And um, I was walking around the other day, Wrigleyville, which is the small town around the Chicago Cubs baseball stadium. And these are businesses that don't even open in the winter. They are completely reliant on baseball. And I, I was just wondering how on earth these people can possibly survive with like over half their year wiped out financially. And when you come to football, we're going to have lower league clubs who are going to go to the wall. We're going to have all these problems. The schedule looks like an issue, the, the, the financing, you know, do we pay back TV money? Do we not? We talked about it last week, talked about it the week before. And it just seems to me that there's no other way we can just free up eight or nine weeks in this schedule. World Cup 2022 at this point, like, are we going to want to unite a ton of countries from all over the world with with the kind of spectre of a pandemic looming over it? I don't know. It's a thought exercise more than anything. I don't want the World Cup to disappear, but I, I think it's something we have to consider just given the extreme circumstances we found ourselves in. Should the World Cup in the main, though, Raf, be what everything else should fit around? I wouldn't go as far, but I think it, it its attraction lies in its in a sense of anachronism. I mean, it is so different to everything else. It is pre-modern in a way. You know, you're, you're being nationalistic, but in a, in a way that usually doesn't hurt people too much. George Orwell's quote, you know, war minus shooting. And I think that the last thing that I would want is sort of the World Cup to go away for the big leagues to be comfortable having more time to play out their seasons. Um, I think that would be that be a devastating um, development. We might, you know, we might save a few clubs along the way, but we'll probably destroy a few FAs as well who won't have any income. Uh, they've already um, 
scrapped a lot of friendlies. I don't think we're going to see the Nations League at all. You know, for the big big federations, it's probably something they can live with. But for the Denmarks and Romanias and Bulgarias of this world, I think they they might go bust uh, unless they have insurance. So I don't know if sort of saving the bulk of football as we know it warrants destroying or or at least deferring the thing that is so different and makes makes the the mundane perhaps more special as well because it comes back it it, it has the variety I think that we that we sometimes miss a little bit. Well, also it's once every four years. I mean, if you wave bye bye to. 2022 assuming that you're not going to try and defer by a year or something like that and get these kind of slight odd Canada quirks um, I'm open to deferring for a year by the way I just think that we've already moved three seasons of football to accommodate the Winter World Cup uh, that's already happened the FIFA calendar has had to shift around I'm not averse to 2023 I just think that scheduling is going to be once they worked out the financial stuff scheduling is going to be one of the biggest issues facing football for the next kind of two or three years yeah but I still think that if you, if you can imagine an eight-year gap between World Cups if this one just gets scrapped and not I mean I also think it's it's a bit fantasy land in the sense that whatever contracts have been drawn up between FIFA, Qatar and all the various uh, contractors who are going to be taking part in putting that World Cup on, I just can't see that there's going to be a situation from a business point of view where that it's just going to disappear in a puff of smoke. I don't think that's plausible. I think any issues that some of us might have with the World Cup being in Qatar, uh, whether it's about the way that it was awarded regarding this week's news in particular, whether it's about the conditions that the workers have had in building all these stadia, whether it's about it being in the winter and disrupting all the Canada. I feel like that's a separate issue. I mean, you can argue the toss about whether or not all that should have been happening in the first place. But I think it's a separate issue with with how we treat the World Cup given this pandemic. And actually, in many ways, considering what's going on in the world now, I can't think of anything much better than the World Cup at the appropriate time when the planet is a bit safer for people to move around and uh, enjoy themselves in sport than a World Cup, I think it will be food for the soul for people. Let's move on from the, from the pandemic side of it and then just pick up then, Amy, on the stuff you mentioned there, whether it be... Uh, which, which you could basically sort of lump under corruption and scandal, really. Yeah, And you mentioned uh, whether it be uh, how the World Cup bid was won, what is happening to workers when they are building stadia in Qatar, as we, as we are told. Um, and people mention all of these things in the build-up to a World Cup and then still go to a World Cup. And therefore... If you look at how World Cups are awarded and then hosted, are, are they basically just cynical money-making and PR exercises for all the sport that might take place? I think from the business point of view, you, you've hit an, a, a quite um, complex nail on its head. Uh, I think if you're talking about the people who indulge in the World Cup and get something out of it that's not financial, i.e. the players or fans across the world who watch it either in person or on TVs, you ask the players how they feel about playing in a World Cup. And most players, I think, who wherever they would have grown up in the world, their fantasy will be playing in a World Cup, maybe may above and beyond a Champions League final. I guess once you get to be a big player and you're at an important club, the club football pull becomes different. But I think in terms of just a gut feeling, to, to take part in a World Cup or to watch a World Cup means too much that all the rest of that stuff kind of fades and most World Cups there's always a bit of pre-tournament anxiety or questions and debates I mean there was a lot even before Brazil about how safe it would be there was certainly a lot before South Africa uh, from the safety point of view there was a, a lot of questions about whether Japan and South Korea would even understand it you know it's just a lot of sort of global snobbery going on and most World Cups do face this kind of criticism before the event and even the Russian one, I, I feel I feel deeply conflicted, and I still do. I certainly did before and during, and to an extent after the last World Cup in Russia, which was like, you know, what's it going to be like there? Is it right that it went there in the first place? And it was a most fantastic tournament to attend, as I'm sure most of you who were there will agree with. Um, but I still found myself wandering around sometimes thinking, hang on, this is just too perfect. What's going on? Where are the poor people where are the stray dogs like life can't be this perfect I was kind of it was just 
an unusually shiny atmosphere across the whole country. And maybe that was just how it always is. Or maybe that it just attained this specialness while the World Cup was going on. But definitely during it, everyone was like, wow, this is great. And all of the pre-match problems kind of disappeared from people's minds. Well, I can, I can remember having several discussions with you, Raph, in Moscow, in a, in a studio, you know, by Red Square with the Kremlin behind about what we were experiencing and how much to believe and would it be like this if we went back in 2019 or or 2020 and the dilemmas of enjoying a world cup and actually having a very very good time with the locals and being welcomed into their city and how much of it was believable we had said i know you were very uncomfortable about certain things weren't you yeah i mean it's <sighs> It felt like. Would you feel the same about Qatar as well? Is the second point. I think Qatar would be would be strange, but perhaps for different reasons. I think Qatar, having been there for one game, England playing Brazil in two thousand nine, um, an exhibition game put on to to carry some favour for as far as the voting was concerned. I don't think that it really means a lot to the people there. I, I only encountered people who were incredibly bored in the stands and just did not care about the game. Don't know if that's going to be the same in 2022. But Russia, the, Russia, the problem was that you felt as if you were in a theme park within a totalitarian state. So the rides were brilliant and the food was great and uh, it was super enjoyable. But you just knew that if you were to step outside that FIFA bubble... And uh, and you could talk to people, of course, um, that there is there was a very different reality and it might have sort of gone away to a certain extent or was suppressed, but it, it, it wasn't a free country. You couldn't do whatever you wanted. And with the privilege that we had as Westerners being there and we were untouchable and could say and do whatever we wanted and then knowing that the moment we left after the World Cup, it would go back to, you know, opposition parties being suppressed and all these kind of things. It felt strange. And the problem with football is that both its biggest strength and its biggest weakness is it has this ability that once the game goes, once the game kicks off, there's a light goes on and everything else kind of disappears into the background. That's why it's so amazing. That's why everybody from legitimate people to the worst dictators in the world want it. That's why it works so well. But it has both that positive and that negative effect. Uh, it is a distraction and is is often used to mask stuff that's going on. And um, we feel, or I felt, somehow complicit in all of this. And I think we'll be it'll be the same. It'll be the same in Qatar. Well, we all are, though, aren't we, Ed? Whether whether it be the media, whether it be uh, various FAs, whether it be fans, I suppose, whether it be players, because. What we're basically saying is whatever the process is in which World Cup is awarded, we then all follow that. We then all go. We play in it. We cover it. We go We go and support it. It, it doesn't, you know, um, and, and even if you may have lost out on a bid in the past as a host country because of bri other corruption or bribery to another country, you might still go back in 20 years from now to try and win another World Cup for your country and play the game as well. We're all complicit in this. What message does that send to FIFA and people like that? It tells them that they can pretty much do whatever they like with the World Cup and people are still going to come. That's why they're bloating it to 48 teams. From 2026, the, the, I mean, I don't know if you've looked at the US-Mexico-Canada tournament in 2026... It's a weird one. There's, like, there's only about eight games or so in Mexico, eight in Canada, and then it's all in the US. But then it's very, very like clumped around the East Coast and stuff. And I, I mean, the thing about the USA is it's going to be a huge World Cup like Brazil in terms of travel. But you're not going to necessarily have the, the cultural impact. Like when we arrived in Russia, I remember having a discussion with you and Rapper on the radio about this exact thing, about feeling weird about the propaganda side of Russia. But... I think the theme park analogy is right, whereas when you've been to other World Cups like Germany, people talk about this, and, and, and Brazil, it's like the World Cup kind of got embedded into the nation for a period of time. However, I, th I think you've got to look at the context, the sporting context in which these big events happen, and the Olympic Games, think about the Olympic Games and the trail of destruction that's left behind it almost for the last six out of the last seven, I think, Olympics have ended up. In, in financial disrepair and you go and look at even at the Rio Olympics venues which are all just kind of waste grounds now completely wasted money uh, overgrown and 
what we have to do is ensure that that does not happen with football. But the problem with Qatar World Cup is what legacy are those stadiums going to have? Like that doesn't make sense in a way that lots of previous World Cups like South Africa or Brazil, we have been able to help install a football framework in that country, a football infrastructure with global football money. Did Germany benefit from from hosting the 2006 World Cup, Raf? Yeah, they did. And uh, I looked at... Economically? Yeah, yeah, economically, yeah, of course. Um, they did. And I looked at um, some studies before coming on. And with Russia, the, the real numbers are hard to come by. They said they were hugely profitable, but um, that is in dispute. But basically, the situation is, if you are already a heavily infrastructured, if that is a word, country, and then you get extra money to modernize your airport, to modernize your stadiums, then it is hugely economically beneficial. If you have to start from scratch, then you really struggle. So while South Korea and Germany made a lot of money and Russia say they made money, South Africa and and Rio and Brazil, sorry, were economically pretty disastrous. You know, you, you build a stadium in the middle of Norway. Yes, there is now a stadium, but... What, what do you do with it? It doesn't really work. But unfortunately, I think what we have learned, even those among us who are perhaps a little bit naive in the, in the past, was that what seemed to be a disadvantage, not having an infrastructure, the way that FIFA has worked uh, up until recently, we hope that it's going to be better soon, that was actually turned into advantage because then suddenly there was a huge incentive to give out contracts to people building streets and building hospital, sorry, hotels and building um, new airports and building uh, new stadiums. So the lack of infrastructure was actually because of the way it worked and because of Exco and all these underhand dealings became actually a key selling point, which is, I always think back to talking to the people who were in charge of the England bid for 2022-18, both at the same time. Um, when the technical report came out from FIFA saying England had the best bid, for a, a week or so, there was a euphoria. Um, people kind of wanted to believe that this was now signaling that they were by, back in the race and they had, you know, they had one hand on the cup, as it were. Later on, they realized that that was actually a death nail because <laughs> it's only when you have billions and billions of infrastructure product to go through, then there is a lot more money that can fall off the back of the wagon. And uh, the fact that England did not need nearly as much money was one of its biggest problems. Which is the problem when you are bidding for one of these tournaments. Not not only that, but FIFA, as it's its own tournament, Amy, makes up its own rules. And in fact, when it comes into a country for that period of time that the tournament is going on, is in many ways above the law on certain things. They have their own laws to that they will stand by rather than the countries. Nice work if you can get it, huh? Okay, well, that's exactly it. The five billion that Russia supposedly made is interesting. Why, why have you heard, Raf, that they, they lost money? That's interesting to me. I was just looking at a reporter saying that... Um in addition to the official 11 billion or so that they spent, there might have been another 14 billion that was spent on infrastructure, which didn't turn up in the official calculations. So I, I don't know. I mean, Russia saying it was profitable. I am not in a position to dispute that, but at the same time, I have read that this is perhaps not the whole, the whole truth. And, and and you know, looping back to something we said at the start, you know, if if you were to try and free up the schedule a little bit by moving uh, 2022. Uh, the biggest reason not to do it is money because if football is going to be financially stretched uh, as we talked about some of these federations aren't going to be able to afford to take a hit and and in world cup years all these federations make a lot more money because there's a world cup windfall and the official fifa number i think for world cup 2018 was was five billion revenue but it's going to be a lot more to those teams because of the sponsorship deals they sell around it and things like that and international football you know, we've kind of covered it, but international football is in a weird place in itself. You know, they're trying to kind of reinsert it into our psyche in Europe with the Nations League and things like that. But international football, if you talk to the international football coaches, is an incredibly weird place to be at the moment. Uh, just to, to clarify, um, the World Cup for FIFA in Russia was hugely profitable. Yes. I think the, the, the most profitable one ever. Whether it was profitable for Russia... 
that's where uh, oh, sorry, diverging. Okay, yeah. yeah, and, no, and, that, and that, uh, that is my point here, Ed, is that, you know, the economic legacy of a World Cup, more often than not, for the hosts, is a myth, whereas for FIFA, it will always yes. be. Econo- an economically so is, very good thing. So this is the thing that if the Olympics are just a way to lose a lot of money and cause yourself problems, and the, and the World Cup becomes a, a way to lose yourself money and cause yourself a lot of problems, um, the big fear I think that people have talked about over the last few years is that we only then have tournaments hosted by autocrats or people with people who need the PR boost of a sports tournament rather than actually you know like wanting to host it for but then i guess the big question that rises from that are what are the right reasons to want to host a world cup if you look at the uh, the last two olympic rounds of of bidding when they went to paris and la there weren't very many other cities that threw their hats into the ring no pun intended compared to 20 years ago when cities were bidding for it because the majority of cities know the costs that the, 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 they will have to incur for hosting an Olympics. And, and in and fact, indeed, when you... The, the other interesting thing, just because uh, I'm in Chicago, LA obviously won the that bid process. But when they were talking in Chicago about bidding for the Olympics and the, resi- the residents overwhelmingly uh, said they didn't want to do it because, you know, the financial impact it's had on so many cities like Athens. And I suppose you could argue then, if you follow that logic, Amy, that when you look at the bidders for the 2030 World Cup, which does seem a very long way away at the moment, you've got Morocco, a joint bid from Uruguay, Argentina, Chile and Paraguay, and then a joint bid as well from Romania, Bulgaria and Greece. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about the that South Korea Japan sort of first joint hosting tournament um a little while ago because that was a fascinating tournament to be at because it felt at the time if you were there like there were two tournaments going on side by side and it only really came together when it got to the very very latter stages but if you were in Japan then all the stuff going on in South Korea just was sort of over there and you you almost didn't have time to to take any notice because you had all your own stuff going on and vice versa um, but I do think that there is a certain logic to sharing tournaments now, and I think it'll. I think it, there's an inevitability about it in many ways, unless it's a massive, strong country that can justify the the expenditure of of what it's going to take to to run and put on. Does anybody want to take do either remember or take a guess at how many stadia they used for the South Korea Japan World Cup, which remember was a World Cup of. 32 teams across, across both countries mm-hmm. okay so uh, the previous world cup to that in france 98 they had 10 stadia and only one of them was a new build which was the stade de france the rest were all existing stadiums that got upgraded admittedly and, and helped along the way let me but just basically let me just reach for my scrub. panini album <laughs> <laughs> i'll go 12 okay yeah, I'd say Any, 12. yeah anyone else raf no cheating um say 14 20 wow 20 stadia they had 10 in south korea and 10 in japan i mean it's it's a madness and obviously there were a lot of new builds in uh involved in that tournament you know that was very much sort of of its time i don't see something like that necessarily happening although in a way it echoes what's going on with with the creation of this whole sort of system of uh, uh, of stadia going up at the moment in in qatar you're looking at a situation where realistically if you want it to be something that's not going to drain nations too badly and put too much stress on them uh, a, a sharing situation is good but it's a question of how how big the sharing is because you really still want to feel like it's one tournament if at all possible so comparing it to say um, the euros that took place in holland and belgium in 2000 because they're two small countries and you could skip between the two in an hour or so it still feel felt like you know, one tournament with just two different flavours going on. But I think if you're talking about the range of countries involved in, in Argentina and Chile and, and Uruguay or Paraguay, it, it's that's, that's a massive sort of scale. But, it, but it's doable if you think that they each have three or four venues. But does it Not also... <laughs> yes, but does it also fit the pattern that you said, Raf, of where... And I, I have to admit, there are a lot of countries on this list that I haven't been to. Uh, of all the bids, whether it be Morocco or the Romania, Bulgaria, Greece and Serbia one on top of the South America one, does it back your point about 
the need for infrastructure in these countries, maybe the hope that they think hosting a World Cup will give them, because you haven't got, say, Western European powerhouses bidding for the 2030 World Cup. I think this is very difficult to to answer in, in general terms. I think if the money is used properly, it is beneficial. I think one of the problems with South Africa, um, going back to that one, I just read that for such a poor country, a relatively poor country, the money could have spent in ways that would have benefited the, the population much more. Um, you know, they could have built housing, they could have been um, hygienic infrastructure, hospitals, all this kind of stuff. So that will always be a trade-off which might not sort of be too pleasant or too favourable from for football's point of view. When it comes now to, to FIFA, the problem is the 48 number. Now that FIFA have gone to 48, it basically rules out all but a handful of single states. I mean, the US could have done it themselves, I guess, but they wanted to maybe take somebody in with more of a, a football flavor in Mexico and maybe just be generous to the Canadians. But it could have, they could have done it themselves. But then, you know, who, who else can? England probably could, Germany probably could, France maybe. Everyone else is struggling, um, maybe China. So unless FIFA go back from that, and I think there is still a possibility, we haven't talked about this, that the 48 might actually turn out to be one, one weird group stage scenario too far. <laughs> We are going to have joint bids and um, with all the, the benefits, but also the problems that come with it. There's no going back. Let's move it on to the 48-team format, which which we will see in, uh, in the USA-Mexico World Cup in 2026. There is no going back from a 48-team World Cup. I don't know. I think if they can't figure out the group stage, then I think there might be an issue. I mean, 48... Is, is an awkward number. 24 was an awkward number. It is difficult to to go from there into the knockouts without losing kind of relevance. The, the thing that the World Cup has, and this I'll go back to what I said before, is it has relevance. It might not have quality, but it has relevance. It has relevance in a way that nothing really else has uh, for, for a nation and therefore for you um, to, to one extent or another. If the group stage just becomes... A given and then things start much later I think we could see possibly possibly a situation akin to the second group stage in the Champions League the older ones not Ed uh, the youngster but the older ones amongst <laughs> us here will, will remember this where even though these were great games with great teams it just was too much we just kind of couldn't handle it and lots of players got injured as well which was another factor so I still have the hope somewhere that 48 will turn out to be a bit of a dud and we might see things go back to 32, which is much more manageable. But, Amy, a World Cup with 48 rather than 32 will have 80 matches instead of 64. And FIFA thinks that will bring in around a billion dollars extra income. So it doesn't matter how much of a faff it might be, how how much you might get the odd meaningless or maybe more than meaningless group games, you get a billion dollars extra. So it would take something spectacularly to go wrong with that format for them to row back from it, you would imagine. Yeah, and let's just ask ourselves where that projected billion pounds is going to end up. So, you know, if FIFA wanted to generate maybe a little bit more goodwill and positivity of people about all this, then if some of that is actually going to either the host countries, if they're going to otherwise operate at losses or to, to helping to regenerate other things outside of uh, the infrastructure that's being upgraded, or if some of that is going to uh, the the poorer football nations, then okay, I can I can probably have that trade off. But otherwise, from a sporting point of view, it does, certainly doesn't make much sense. I didn't. It, it, from a sporting point of view, it it wasn't broke, so there wasn't really a need to fix it in that way. So where's your priority? Is it about you know the ultimate in sport, or is it about just generating as many billions as you can to stick into that? FIFA bank account. Well, FIFA would argue that there is no, there's no contradiction here because you have more money, you give it to more federations, they can then spend more money on on building new stadium, etc. I mean, they they see it as a, I guess, as a no brainer. And every single FIFA president, their pitch always comes down to, I'm going to generate more money for you as a federations, and then you say, okay, I'll vote for you. Um, <laughs> That, that's what it comes down to. I talked to someone in football a while back who described Sepp Blatter's kind of approach when he was 
in charge of FIFA is bribery by inclusion. Basically, if you can get more countries involved, they get more money for playing the games. So the more countries you can get to the table, the more money these people are going to get and the quicker they're going to vote you back in. So if you look at a 48-team World Cup, that's going to be 16 teams that wouldn't have other, otherwise had a big trip to the big show, you know? And that's going to be transformative for, for some of them. Some of them will just need it to stave off financial ruin, I'm sure. But if you're maybe the Kosovo Football Federation and you make your first World Cup, that is going to be financially transformative for a country of that size. So there's that element to it. Was it $2.9 billion in reserves that FIFA was sitting on? Eddie, it'd be financially transformative if, if the money goes back to the right places. So, it, it, so, yes, I mean, we know that it would to an extent, because if you play in a World Cup, that's obviously going to be financially very impactful for you, um, as opposed to missing out on a tournament. Like, they will get some of the money. However, I mean, the, the whole thing with the 48-team World Cup is, like you say, is, is if you have 16 groups of three, then one bad result can, like, throw one of the best teams out the tournament. And as much as we like surprises... What we do not like is lots of good teams getting knocked out because the format is bad. And if you had one tournament like that, I think they'd immediately scale it back. Did you like Euro 2016 when Wales got to the semi-finals and Northern Ireland got out of their group and Iceland did their thing? I did quite like it, yeah. I had a great time. <laughs> I was bouncing around the south of France for a month. That, that well, that, but that was an expanded Euros. No, that no, went no, from no, 16 no, to I'm 24. Not, it wasn't a great Euros. And US, Mexico, Canada will be prepared for it. If they do that World Cup in South America, that would be wild. I know it's the centenary. That's why Argentina, Uruguay um, are, are trying to host it. Then it was deemed that they needed some help. Chile can provide a couple of stadiums. Paraguay, probably just one. Uruguay might only provide one or two um, and the rest would be Argentina. But I mean, you talk about like you having to use the money correctly and make sure there's no impropriety and it, money doesn't go missing. If you try doing that with a South American World Cup, we think we've already seen with Brazil that a lot of that money goes missing. Um, so I don't hold out too much hope. That bid might win, but uh, it'll be very difficult to see it go well, unfortunately. Euro 2016 wasn't a great Euros. Why, Raph? It wasn't a great Euros because I don't remember too many too many games um, that really caught the imagination. Um, I mean, for the for the home nations, of course, it was it was pretty spectacular, and but in pure footballing experience terms uh the group stage was a little bit of a a given for most sides um you didn't have the same sense of jeopardy that you had for example at russia where there was genuine excitement i think throughout throughout the competition while the drop-off in form between the teams that you'd expect and the teams that only got in there because the format was expanded wasn't as pronounced i think as someone had feared um because the the quality isn't that strong to begin with even amongst the better sides I still felt that the the way that the group save was structured basically it didn't create a lot of drama and and kept things fairly safe and by the time the knockouts kicked off yes you had England Iceland this kind of stuff but it I don't know it was a little bit low low key um, Okay but was that down to the four? do you think that was down to the number of teams and therefore because you were only going to lose eight teams out of that group stage you you could have a fairly lukewarm start. You didn't have to hit the ground running. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I mean there was there was no real I think danger for for any other sides. I think I mean Portugal kind of left it late to qualify and then of course won it. But yeah, I mean by and large, I think it was it was a tournament low on on genuine excitement. It might have just been a coincidence that it you know coincided with with the extended format, but it didn't strike me as a as a vintage competition. I suppose it depends what you want from a from an international tournament and a World Cup, Amy, doesn't it? Whether you want whether you want jeopardy, whether you want giant killing, when you whether you want to see games between powerhouse nations early on, whether you want to see a country play football that, you know, you don't get to see very often, no matter how many times people might claim to watch them on YouTube or this, that and the other. But, you know, a genuine surprise team creating a shock. Or do you want all of that from a World Cup? That's a good question. Uh, I, I was just thinking now how torn I am as you're going through through that list. Um, for example, 
that Iceland England game that, that I was at was just it was just a, a mega experience to see um, you know what happened to Iceland that fairy story and it kind of culminating in this this tale of uh, extraordinary sort of David against Goliath you know that lives long in the memory but because of where we are in the world at the moment there's a lot of looking back and a lot of what was your favorite you know game you remember or your best this or the best that and you know the things that I'm seeing cropping up certainly as regards to international football and stuff are the real heavyweight you know the massive games the um Italy Germany you know France the, the mega games of your youth that you remember they tend not to be the surprises I mean that probably is the case if you're coming from a smaller footballing nation if you've got a great shock that is iconic in your country that would be it but for the rest of us the ones you remember are those heavyweight sort of knockout matches between the great sides I mean I think about the last World Cup I, you know that that uh, Argentina France game just boah, that was electricity that was stupendous best game I've been at in my entire life that's the one I remember I, I don't remember uh, I don't remember a shock game the first thing I think of when I think of that World Cup is probably that but then if you go back to Italia 90, wasn't one of the games of that World Cup? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> exactly, that that's why I was torn. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, the I mean, I basically of- went because we sat and watched the uh, the opening game between Cameroon and Argentina right. on the telly and all looked at each other with our jaws on the floor and went, oh my <laughs> God, and went, and went and just grabbed a bit of money in a sleeping bag and just went. Um, looked at the old wall chart and, and said, where should we go? We're at Turin, Genoa. Looks like a great group. Brazil, Costa Rica, Sweden, Scotland. Let's go. Off we went. But you could do that then. You could go without having bought a ticket in advance. You could just rock up. It was just, you know, it was an old fashioned experience. There was a lot of terrible football at the World Cup in 1990. Uh, I'm not I think having it. It's- <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just remember watching so many dull games. Of course, nothing duller than the final, even though it was the final, it was unwatchable. <laughs> but then, but then, actually, Raf, I think that, I have to say, I think that is the case with most tournaments or most leagues or most, you know, I often have this argument, although we're going slightly off subject, I often have this argument about the FA Cup third round when people keep going on, oh, you know, it's not the same and it's this, that and the other. Look, all the way through the years, there have been terrible games in the third round of the FA Cup. It's not every year you get Wrexham beating Arsenal or, you know, or Bournemouth beating Manchester United in the 80s, whatever it may be. They are few and far between, which is why they are still spoken about even now, because they are rare. You don't get a perfect tournament that often. Yeah, no, that is fair. That is fair. Um, You don't want too many surprises because... I think that's what ultimately the problem was with 2002 and uh, and Russia to a certain extent. Too many good teams went out a little bit too early, um, which why you know we had we had England, for example, do so well. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, no, England were England were pretty decent in Russia. So I'm not so much talking about the upsets. I'm just talking about the the real quality of, of football. Um, I I think it's the, the ideal scenario is. Is great games with with just enough of variety to keep things fresh. But if the favourites, sort of your top four, six rated team, make it to the to the quarter stroke semis, I think secretly everyone's a little bit happier than seeing, for example, Croatia and England. Yeah, battle it out. But if you get to a 48-team tournament, Ed, and a team who's never been there before gets out of that group and then maybe wins a couple of knockout games and gets to the quarterfinals, partly will it be remembered for what they did and therefore is it worth it? Well, yeah, that's what happens is we attach a narrative to it anyway. You know, it, England did incredibly well and, and got knocked out in the semifinals, but they also got, an, if you remember, just a ludicrously easy draw because of the way things shook out. You know, it could be that, uh, I don't know, let's pick it around country, Finland at the next World Cup get through to the quarterfinals and we attribute it to their great coach. It might not be, it might just be that they've got a couple of easy games, but that's fine. We don't mind that. Like the World Cup is is full of these stories. Like even you remember teams like New Zealand who I think didn't win a game, but didn't lose a game. They drew all three and then went home without without losing. You know, th- th- these things happen and it's just part of the World Cup's fabric, I guess. And then if you bring it closer to home to sort of en- end this off, really, whatever the corruption and scandal might be, whatever the debate about 
whether um, you know a certain country should be hosting a World Cup because of its record, uh, either either internationally or nationally and politically, whether the format is far too long and doesn't really work, whether the money doesn't necessarily go back to the country that's hosting it and just goes into FIFA's bank accounts. What essentially happens is football takes place. And where we are, we are covering it at the World Cup. But what is going on back home here or back home in Germany, Raf, or in France or in Cameroon more than makes up for everything else, doesn't it? Because it brings nations to a standstill. It does. And, and people can be as cynical as they want, but there is, there is still a, a sense of purity in the actual game once the ball is rolling and there are 11 people on each side trying to win that supersedes everything and that that's why it's so attractive for everyone um that's why it's easy to say oh you know the game is ruined now that's why i always laugh about people saying vr vr is ruining football because everything is ruining football there's a million things that are ruining football but it doesn't get ruined because the game kicks off and nothing else really matters and we watch it again and again and again and we don't stop and it'll be the same with the world cup but I, I hope that the 48 will not work out as much as I want the money to be spread around, etc. I I don't want the group stage ruined and I don't want, you know, uh, a, a tournament just doesn't work on its own terms as a, as a competition. Um, and I think that it'd be a good, good moment maybe to, to pause and hit the reset button. But it's unlikely to happen for all the reasons that Ed pointed out earlier. Ed? It's a shame because we know what the World Cup can be and what the World Cup is. And I think the nostalgia stuff we've touched on is like what the World Cup means to all of us. And then we're looking towards the next World Cup as being being played in a place that's never qualified for the World Cup, you know, essentially in a bubble. And it's not quite what we grew up with. It's different, but that is that is the world. The world does change. And I'm, I'm hoping that, you know... 2022 is a absolute blowout. 48 team, uh, sorry, 32 team World Cup, and we go to America, and it's great. I'm just, I'm just not as confident in the whole shebang as I used to be. Are you going to end on a hopeful note, Amy? <laughs> well, uh, it's hard, even despite changes, to have that much faith in FIFA. But I retain faith in football, uh, and that's what makes me feel that if and when any World Cup comes around, we're all just at the mercy of this magical thing. Um, and it's it's a way of suspending disbelief of everything that's going on in the rest of your life. And uh, bring it on. I can't wait for the next one. <laughs> Wherever, however, I'll always feel that way, I think. Even if I might wrestle a bit with some of the details once the football starts. As Ra- I, to be honest, when Rafa was giving his little speech at the end there, I kind of wanted to stand up and give, a, give him a standing ovation. I he, oh, thank you. I think he nailed it. Um, yeah, the ball rolls and it's perfect. We'll end it there on a standing ovation for Raf from Amy. <laughs> why? Why? What? What better way to end it than uh, Amy's standing ovation for Raf? Um, Me alone in my little little yeah. room here. <laughs> there you go, Raf. Thank you, thank you. I'm taking a bow. <laughs> thank you very much to Ed and to Amy and to Raf, and we'll see you with another future of football next week.